these books that are up here. The one is uh, a devotional. You may have seen Jerry Bridges' classic book, Trusting God, yellow, orangish, uh, sort of um, a little thicker paperback, um, just long-standing sort of excellent book on God's sovereignty, God's care for his people, and what it is to trust him through circumstances. This is a devotional form of that, much more abridged version, but it's 31 days toward trusting God. Um, great sort of giveaway book if you've got somebody that's um, just in need of encouragement about trusting in him. This is a, a really good book. Jerry Bridges, all of his stuff is excellent, but this is a good little resource. The other book by Mark Brogup, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discover, uh, Discovering the Grace of Lament, I'll talk about during the sermon, uh, but I'll just mention again, those are here. Um, please feel free after the service if you can make use of those, um, either one, uh, go ahead and take them. Last month, uh, some of you saw this on some of the Christian publications on the internet, internet, a church in California became sort of a subject of curiosity for many on the internet, spent several days praying for the resurrection of a two-year-old girl who had died suddenly. Her mother, a Christian music writer, posted on Instagram, said this, we're asking for prayer. We believe in a Jesus who died and conclusively defeated every grave holding the keys to resurrection power. We need it for our little Olive Elaine, who stopped breathing yesterday and has been pronounced dead by doctors. We are asking for bold, unified prayers from the global church to stand with us in belief that he will raise this little girl back to life. While scripture does not give us a mandate or a prescription necessarily for that kind of praying that that family did or that church took part in or many others did, it's, it's not hard to imagine why. They did what they did. There is little in life that is more devastating than the death of a child. The experience of walking through just numbing pain and agonizing grief and despair that just feels like a dark tunnel that, that doesn't have an end in sight. The deaths of those closest to us raise all kinds of questions that we don't always get good answers to. They cause us to grieve. We experience the, the depths of sorrow in those moments. We've been talking for the last couple of weeks on this topic of suffering. A couple of weeks ago, God's sovereignty, his role in our suffering, how we see God interacting with suffering throughout scripture. And then last week, how we respond to unjust suffering, suffering that's caused by another person's evil, how in particular we, we address that. So this morning, I, I want us to think about what I'll, I'll call, for lack of a better description, biblical coping strategies. What, what do we do when the, the cause of the suffering is so intense, when the pain is um, so um, profound, so sustained, that it, it just feels like we are in a pit of despair? What does Scripture give us in those moments? How does it speak to us in that kind of suffering when it feels like there's no way out? It may be the death of a close loved one. It may be a chronic, debilitating, painful illness that just seems to go on and on. It may be some abandonment by a spouse, a child, someone close and trusted. We get some of the language of this in Psalm 13. David begins and he says, "'How long, O Lord?' Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? 
you can feel in David's language just the sense of desperation, of a feeling like this is just going on and on, and the hopelessness and the pain seems to have no end in sight, and so much so that he says, it is just, it is sorrow all day long. I just am in grief all of the time over whatever this is that, that David is experiencing in this moment. Some of you have been there. Some of you are, are walking there now. For some of you, this is really fresh. This sermon isn't going to, to fix everything and take away your grief or give you all the answers, but the Bible does walk us through suffering. It does speak again and again to how we are called to, to live and endure through times of great grief. Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah says that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It is a reminder to us that, that, that we have a, a God who, who knows our sorrow, who knows grief, who very much like Hebrews says, is able to, to sympathize with our weaknesses, understands them. He is a God who meets us in our sorrow. The Bible is filled with accounts of, of pain and suffering and grief. Of the 150 psalms, roughly a third are lament psalms, lament being sort of crying out of some level of despair, some kind of pain or suffering. Suffering begins in Genesis 3. It begins with uh, man is in this perfect garden and sins and he disobeys and, and, and pain and suffering result. Genesis 3 tells us that God's curse because of man's fall into sin is pain. There would be pain in childbirth for the woman and to Adam he said, cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Modern technology has perhaps somewhat mitigated some of that pain, at least maybe some since the time of Eve, maybe mitigated a little bit. Certainly in the farming sector, we know that modern technology has, has mitigated the working of the soil to some degree, and yet the reality is that sort of pain and suffering that descended on man as Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden in Genesis 3 marks us all the days of our lives. We know it, we live in it. We are in that period that it will not lift until God makes all things new. In Revelation 21, when, when tears are wiped away and pain is no more. In between where we live, there are countless experiences. of Pain and suffering and death and grief. Next Sunday, we're gonna wrap the series up and, and and really go there to Revelation 21 to what I, I think is the ultimate end to which Scripture points us in our grief, and that is our eternal hope, that is to, to look forward in all of these things. But for today, I just want us to think about the here and now and some practical ways that God gives us in His Word to endure in times of pain and suffering. How do we cope when the suffering just seems unending? No, no miracle answers here, no, no, nothing uncovered that, that was secret before that you didn't know. Most of these are things you've probably thought about. These are truths that are repeated often in Scripture. And if you read the accounts of other believers who walk through suffering or you've walked with them, you've heard these sorts of principles at play. You've heard people say exactly these kind of things that we're going to talk about, that this is where they ultimately found hope in the things we're talking about. I, I don't come to this from an abundance of experience in these things. I'm, I'm not immune to grief, but I don't have a, 
a long resume in that. My mom died when I was young. Robin and I have been through the pain of miscarriages. We, we went through about a three-year stretch in the early 2000s when we buried both of our dads and a couple of uncles and a precious sister-in-law. And so we, we know somewhat of that. And testimonies from other people are helpful. It's, 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 it's somewhat comforting. It's somewhat instructive. And yet, ultimately, we know the truth must come from the wisdom of God's word. That's, that's what must speak truth to us in these kind of situations. So four biblical coping strategies for when suffering hits home. I would love to tell you, and I thought about this this week, that I have some alliteration here to make these four easy. I would love to, as is the, you know, the DC thing, to give you an acronym to, to sum them all up, as I said in first service, and nobody came to me afterwards. I said, if you come up with four other words that you can put into an acronym to make this easier, let me know. Just don't spend the rest of the sermon trying to figure out the perfect acronym. But I'll give you these four words. Weep, pray, listen, and share. Weep, pray, listen, and share. Let's start with weeping. Bible uses a number of words to describe this gamut of emotions when it comes to suffering, sort of captures the whole range of emotions that come with pain and heartbreak. Words like weep, mourn, cry, moan, grieve, lament. These sorts of words are, are all throughout Scripture. J.I. Packer wrote, Grief at the loss of a loved one is as old as the human race. Everyone who loves will experience it sooner or later, and the greater the love, the greater the grief when the time of loss arrives. Grief is, is painful. It is exhausting. It can be overwhelming. It, it can be paralyzing. It can feel even lonely because it's difficult for other people to enter into our grief to the same level that we are experiencing it. We feel like they can only come so far into where we are at that moment and what we're feeling. Richard Baxter, the Puritan pastor from the 17th century, wrote a book just about a month after his dear wife died and in, in tribute to her, and he wrote to describe his own heart at one point, he said, as being under the power of melting grief. Uh, what, a, what a captivating picture that sounds like to me, melting grief. It is the idea of grief that just is, is wasting away. It saps energy. It, it, it just sours ambition and desire and passion, all of that just seemed to go away when grief just comes in and we're encompassed by it. Grief is all over scripture. When Jacob is lied to and told that his son Joseph is dead, we see in Genesis 37 that he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, and it says that he mourned for his son many days and refused to be comforted can only begin to imagine the, the grieving and the weeping as Jacob mourns the death of his son. In Deuteronomy, it says that the children of Israel after the death of Moses were weeping and mourning for 30 days. David gives us numerous experiences in his Psalms where he, he draws us in to see this sort of grief. He is suffering in Psalm 38 for some sin of his own, and he says this, I am Utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. What, what a description. Some of you can relate to that. Just the, the oppressive 
sense of pain and sorrow that just seems to, to move through the whole body. He can feel it in his whole being. And, and, and he just can't seem to get out from underneath it. it it's just so overwhelming. Book of Lamentations, series of poems from Jeremiah as he is grieving over the city of Jerusalem as the, the Babylonians are coming to, to bring God's judgment on the Jewish people. And, and Jeremiah in, in Lamentations speaks of bitter weeping and restless moaning and groaning from affliction, weakness in his body. Lamentations 1.16, he says, For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me. Here's the prophet just saying, I am just overwhelmed in sorrow and, and weeping, and there is no comfort for this. Jesus wept, we know, at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11, even, even as he is about to perform what is the most remarkable of miracles. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He is certainly knowing what he is going to do, and yet he is weeping at the, at the destruction, at the consequences of sin and death, at the ravages of sin and death. He is, has bitter disdain for, for what sin and death do to his creation, and it, it brings him to weeping. He wept again as he's coming into Jerusalem in Luke 19.41. He is approaching the city, and he is knowing that they are about to reject their, the, the anointed one of God, their Messiah, their Savior, and, and Jesus again weeps. These verses... Jacob on up through, through Jesus, affirm the validity of our own experience of emotions, the very human emotion of grief. God made us as creatures who mourn. When there is pain and suffering, there is there's weeping, there's crying and tears. This is why Revelation 21 is so, so beautiful to us when it says that there is coming a day when there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We celebrate that because we understand how awful death is, how painful it is, how agonizing suffering is, and what it is to weep. Those very things that we know about grieving and weeping sometimes are the things that will tempt some to try to internalize or deny grief. Maybe some of you have struggled with this, that, that, that sense of, I, I don't want to feel drained. I don't want to feel overwhelmed. I don't want to be in this agony, and so I'm going to I'm going to try to stuff it down, suppress it, pretend it didn't happen, do, do something to just move on. And, and not break down and not mourn and cry. And that, that is, we are emotional beings made by a God who designed us this way in his image. God did not rebuke the tears of the, of the psalmists as they are crying out in agony. Jesus does not chastise the, those who are lamenting at Lazarus's tomb. As a matter of fact, Romans 12, 15 tells us the opposite. Weep with those who weep. Come alongside them. And cry with them. We're reminded throughout Scripture that, that, that mourning is, is to be expected. Ecclesiastes, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We like the, the laughter and, and the dancing part, and that's, that's all good, but the, the weeping and the mourning, sometimes we try so hard to, to just push it away, and yet, he says, there's a time for this. 
Ecclesiastes 7 says that we, we may love feasting and joy, we may love celebrations, but it is in the house of mourning that wisdom is found. It is in that grieving and thinking about life and death and all of these things, contemplating them. That is the place of wisdom. It is right to weep. There is no praise for the, the proud stoic who refuses to shed a tear. Death is the worst and final enemy. And until it is done away with, then Jesus continues to, to wipe away tears. There continues to be sorrow and there continues to be grief until that day when death is no more. and Weeping is no more. So weep. Second, pray. Told you these are obvious ones, but do not retreat from speaking to God. Do not pull back from crying out to him. It is in those times of suffering when we are so tempted by Satan to isolate ourselves. And what we read throughout the Psalms, when we're reading, hopefully as you're starting the new year, maybe you're doing some Bible reading and maybe it's hopefully taking you to the the Psalms each day, and as you're reading a Psalm, we're, we're not just observing people talking about grief or sadness. We are reading their actual prayers. We are reading the words of those who are praising and those who are in grief as they are speaking to God many times in the midst of suffering. One of the most important roles of the book of Psalms should be to be our prayer book in suffering to be the, the language that we need to read so that it, it comes into our heart and comes back out of our mouths as we are walking through grief. I mentioned earlier this book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Brogup's book, uh, came out last year. I, I could not recommend it more highly. And, and I, I don't mean just, you know, if, if you're thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not suffering, I'm not, I'm not in need of lament right at this moment, there's no grief going on. Th this is this is an excellent book just on thinking through these psalms and praying according to the psalms. And also it's a great book to read just so that you can come alongside of others and you can help them in, in their grief as they cry out to God and pray. And, and he deals with this whole category of psalms called the lament psalms. He defines lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Prayer and pain that leads to trust. And he kind of walks through a number of these lament psalms and shows there's, there's in most all of them, there's kind of this sequence of four things. There's first turning to God. That's where the psalm begins. It is to, to come to God in prayer. It is in the midst of my agony. It is crying out to God. That's, that's first. Second, there's some kind of complaint. There's something being voiced that is a sense of hurt or dissatisfaction or discontentment, if you will, with the, the circumstances. There's some kind of complaint. Third, then, is a request, making some bold request to God. And then finally, an expression of trust. I believe in who you are. But it all starts in the very midst of your suffering by turning to God and praying. If there is one message we should get from the Psalms as you read them over and over and over, it's that when we are in the pit of despair, when we have gone through terrible loss, when we are in great pain, when we have been victimized by someone else's evil, when everything seems to be wrong, we must turn to God. We must cry out to him and pray and speak to him. 
That's the, the lesson of the Psalms is, is come to me and cry out. That's the, the premise. Don't stop praying no matter what season of life you're in, no matter how despairing you feel. Don't retreat from speaking to God. In the Psalms, 17 times there's some form of the words, I cry out to the Lord. 20 times, I call on you, Lord. About a dozen times, there's some form of a psalmist saying, answer me, O God. Answer me when I call. Because of who you are and your steadfast love, answer me. In Psalm 102, it's answer me speedily. Psalm 143, answer me quickly. There is, it, it's really interesting when, when, you're, when you're studying the Bible, often you're looking for these sort of imperative verbs, commands, things that say, do this. And typically it's, it's commands to us on what to do. And you walk through the Psalms and so many of these imperatives are the prayer speaking to God and, and making this bold, strong request to God, frequently crying out, be gracious to me, Lord. Hear my prayer. Save me, O God. Give ear to my words. Consider my groaning. These are all imperatives. Do this, God. Give attention to the sound of my cry. Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Awake for me. See my affliction. Help us. Restore us. Save the Psalms urge us to cry out to God, to, to speak to him boldly, and, and to, to call on him. The dangerous place for us as believers is, is when we let Satan sort of isolate us. God knows this. I don't need to cry out. He's He's sovereign. I know he knows. I don't want to pray right now. I don't want to talk to God right now. I'm, I'm, I'm angry at all that's happening. I'm overwhelmed with sorrow. This is not the time for me to talk to the, the Holy One. No, this is the time when Scripture says over and over we are to cry out to him, that we are to, to call on him. The Psalms are full of struggles and questions, but each one is a child of God going to his heavenly Father saying, I, I don't. I don't understand, or I've come to praise you. You are steadfast, but I, I'm struggling in some way. Rogop speaks of this idea of making a complaint to God. We've got all these psalms that sound like complaining, and yet we know, Philippians says, do all things without arguing or complaining, right? How many of you have taught that to your children? That was, I think, one of the first memory verses we ever did with our kids. Do all things without arguing and complaining. And yet then you come to the Psalms and you've got the psalmist one after another saying, God, where are you? You do not seem to be present here. I feel as if you've abandoned me. Remember Psalm 13 we mentioned before, how long, O Lord? That is not an isolated statement. Psalm 10, Lord, why are you standing so far away? Why are you hiding from me? Psalm 44, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? God's not, God's not far away. He's imminent. He doesn't sleep or slumber. And yet he gives us this in Scripture to show us his people expressing what, what they are feeling at the moment. I am in such pain that I feel like you are far from me. David in Psalm 88, verse 13, Lord, I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? In, in, in each of these, there is a 
There's a complaint. There is some sense in this moment of, of complaining about circumstances, this, this experience of what feels like distance, this hurt that just is, is so overwhelming in this moment, and, and it's being voiced. But it's not just sort of an isolated complaint, just sort of rattling off bits of anger. This, this complaint always seems to fall within the context of request and trust. They're not separated. In other words, it's not just complaining to God, but it is, it, it, it's complaining in a way that also reflects this sort of dependent trust of, I must cry out to you. If I am to find any help in this, if there is to be any good in this, it must come from you. And, and in each of these, there's this dependence, there's this boldness that, that ultimately says, yes, this is awful. And I feel alone and abandoned and hurt, and yet I know who you are. I know what is true here, and I know you haven't left me, and that you will be the only one who can perfectly meet me and satisfy me in this place. These complaints are raised with trust. Even though everything else has failed, even though it's, it all hurts and it's terrible, I still know you are God. Even the, the bleakest of these Psalms, Psalm 88, that just seems to end on such a down note. We, we read a portion of it there a moment ago. Even Psalm 88 begins with, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. And so as bleak as this psalm filled with groaning and agony becomes, it is preceded by a clear statement of, I know to whom I am speaking. And I am purposefully turning to you, O God, who is my Savior. I am turning to you with this cry and with this agony that I am experiencing. I am coming to you, O God of my salvation. That is still reflective of ultimately a dependent sense of trust. So when we, when we pray in grief or we have the privilege to serve someone else and come alongside them, pray the Psalms. If you're not sure how to pray, use, use the language of the Psalms. We, we tend to get uncomfortable sometimes with some of these things, and yet this is God's word teaching us how God's people come to him in pain how they speak to him in dependent trust, but also pouring out their hearts. These circumstances are awful. They are painful. This hurts. My heart is broken. I, I feel abandoned. I don't feel your presence. Boldly call on God. Be near. Deliver me. Hear me. Come in my affliction and strengthen me. Help me to trust in you. One of the best-known lament psalms is Psalm 22, and it is because we know verse 1 because of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's language from Psalm 22 where David goes on, and, and he in fact then says, I am crying out to you. You are far from saving me. You are not answering. And then in verse 3 of Psalm 22, yet... You are holy, and you, our fathers, trusted to you, they cried, and were rescued. Yet, I know who you are. I know your history in dealing with man. And so even in this, I know you're there, even if, it, if you feel so far away. David's experience in Psalm 22 is, is different from the experience of Jesus when he quotes Psalm 22. David felt abandoned. David felt what you and I 
feel as believers in Jesus Christ at times when suffering feels like, like we are forsaken. But David ultimately believed, as he goes on to, to state through that psalm, that he was not forsaken. He's being very honest and transparent when he says, my heart is breaking and I, I feel abandoned, but yet you are holy and you are the God who I've read of before, who saves and delivers, and I know who you are. And so I trust in you. I know you're there. He cried out in dependent trust. Jesus is different because Jesus was actually forsaken when he was on the cross. Because in that moment, when, in that time on the cross, when God the Father is, is pouring out his just wrath, it is now our sin that is upon the Savior. And our, our Savior is experiencing the, the forsaking that we deserve for our sin with the punishment of the wrath of God the Father. And he's experiencing it so we never have to. So that we can be brought to know him and be drawn near to him in a way that we can't imagine Jesus was forsaken on the cross. And yet in both instances, David and Jesus, what do they do? They cry out to God. They pray. They're not driven away by their circumstances. They're not retreating because of their feelings. They are bringing their feelings and their honesty, and they are pouring it out to God, and they are trusting that somehow, God, you who are good and kind, I need strength. Provide care, listen. So weep, pray. Third one is listen. No matter how awful your suffering is, no matter how great the pain is, do not cut yourself off from listening to God through his word. You must continue to hear God. So you must continue to have his word spoken to you whether it's through preaching, whether it's through brothers or sisters, whether it's through your own reading, you must keep listening to God in our grief. In our grief, we must be even more intentional about going to God to hear his voice in his word because, again, everything in those circumstances tempts to push us away, that, that we, we just want to be self-focused and we just want anything but because we're angry or we're upset. We need to hear from God. Two examples in scripture. I know I've mentioned these before. I just think they're so important when it comes to how we hear from God, especially in these circumstances. There's, there's Asaph in Psalm 73, who is, who is in a state of utter confusion when we meet Asaph in Psalm 73. He is looking at the world around him and his, his head is spinning because he is surrounded by people who do evil and who seem to prosper from it, who seem to get away with it, and everything seems to be fine. And so the first nine verses of Psalm 73 is Asaph standing there, looking at the world around him, going, look at these people. Can you believe this? They are, they are clothed in pride and violence. They oppress the weak. They threaten people. They exploit people. And they even dare to say, God doesn't see us. We get away with this. That's essentially the word I'm characterizing there, the way Asaph is looking at it. They, they are acting like, like God doesn't even see them. And then Asaph talks about himself. <laughs> As for me, I, I've tried to stay pure. I wash my hands. I do the rituals. I seek to be righteous. And all the day long I am stricken. And his conclusion after looking at them and looking at him, his conclusion in verse 16 is basically to say, when I think, think about all this, it hurts my brain. 
That's really what he's saying. When he says in verse 16, when I tried to understand all of this, it was a wearisome task. I could not make sense of it. And it hurt because it seemed so wrong. And that whole psalm pivots on verse 17, right? When in verse 17, the turning point, he says, until I entered the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Asaph didn't have 66 books of the Bible that he could pull out and read. He might have had some scrolls of, of the Torah to read. But, but what he's saying is, when I reached the point of complete agony and hurt and not understanding, what did I do in that moment? I went to the sanctuary of God. I knew I needed to hear from God. I needed God to speak to me. I needed to just shut my mouth. That's what we do now in the presence of God. We come into his sanctuary, we shut our mouths, and we say, speak to me. Let me hear what's true in this. And he does. And the rest of Psalm 73 doesn't change the circumstances. It changes Asaph's heart. So that now that he has come to the sanctuary of God and he has seen what God is, is doing, he's gotten some answers. We don't always get all of the answers, even as much as Asaph got, but he found peace. And he goes on to speak of the Lord as his refuge. And you have this sweet resolution because Asaph, in the middle of his sorrow, intentionally purposes to listen to God. The prophet Habakkuk, the other I've shared this before, it's my favorite Old Testament book is Habakkuk. The prophet looks at all the circumstances around him. There is evil going on around him. The people who are supposed to be God's people are committing evil. And so he goes to God and says, God, come on, you can't tolerate this. You are, I'm nothing, you're pure. How do you look on this? Do something about it. And God says, you're right, Habakkuk. Let me bring the Babylonians over and I'll come in and I will judge these people, the Jewish people, for their sin using the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is stunned. No, wait, you can't use even more evil people to punish us. That doesn't make sense either. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, it's God speaking to Habakkuk, and the gist of it is, trust me, Habakkuk, I am in control, and I know what I'm doing. The last part, Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. It, it, it is to Habakkuk, trust me, son, rest in me in this. And, and you get to chapter 3, and it is this glorious hymn of praise in which Habakkuk says, now I get it. Even if we lose everything, even if the Babylonians destroy everything, yet I will praise you. Even if everything fails, I will still rejoice in the Lord who is my strength. What happened? What changed? He listened to God. It, it, it didn't give him the answer that he wanted. It didn't answer his prayer the way he desired, but nonetheless, he listened in trust to God, and he listened to what God said to him. I, I, I said to you at the start, there's nothing, there's nothing magical here. There's no special secret answers here, but the, the reality is, if you think about this, I know this is true for myself, how many times when you are in the midst of suffering, when things are going wrong, and you are experiencing pain, do you get preoccupied with the circumstances and the stuff and neglect the word of God? How, how easy is it in those moments to get pulled away from the time that you need to meditate on who he is? That, that's what the Psalms keep reminding us. Got to know who God is and what God has done. That's what keeps bringing the psalmists back each time is, wait, you're a faithful God and I've got all the proof because I've seen it again and again and again. 
And yet, how many times do we get pulled away from that and we convince ourselves, this is too hard, I'm too upset right now, I don't want to read God's word at this moment, I'm too busy, I'll do it later, whatever. We need to listen to him. He wants to speak wisdom to us. It is the living and active word of God. James, when he says, when you experience trials of various kinds, what is it that we need, does James say? We, we think in our minds what we need is relief. I need you to take the trials away. And James doesn't say that. He says, no, we need wisdom from God. We need to cry out to God for wisdom. Help me understand. Help me to think rightly about this. We cannot honestly claim to be wanting God's wisdom in our trials if we cut ourselves off from feeding on his word. We must be listening. Weep, pray, listen, and finally share. This one is as much for all of us as a body, for those who are alongside the sufferer as it is for the the ones who are actually suffering. There are a number of scriptures that speak to this. I've already mentioned Romans 12, 15. Weep with those who weep. Body of believers, Romans 12, all about the body functioning together, exercising its gifts. One of the things we're called to do is get alongside those people who are mourning and in grief and cry with them. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. I I may not be able to enter into your grief in, in anywhere near the magnitude of what you're going through, but I can come right alongside you. And I can begin to experience just some of what you're suffering and be there with you during that. 2 Corinthians 1, 4, and 5, when he speaks of the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our our trials. And and Paul's point in 2 Corinthians is not just, he doesn't just comfort you to make you feel better, but he comforts us so that we might comfort others with the comfort with which he has comforted us, he says in 2 Corinthians 1, 4, and 5. So, Now that you've experienced and you've walked through stuff and seen God's faithfulness and he's comforted you with strength, now come alongside someone else and help them. Speak to them. Listen to them. Be there for them. You and I in suffering have individual responsibility to cry out to God, just like Asaph and Habakkuk, but as a community of believers is responsible to come alongside you and I together corporately need to suffer with those who are suffering and weep with those who are weeping and comfort them. Early in his his book, broke up in this uh, Dark Clouds book, tells about um, the point at which he and his wife just felt like they were at the the bottom. They They had been through the stillbirth of a daughter almost at the the very point of her due date. And then for two years, going through miscarriages, failed attempts at pregnancy, and it is just one thing after another. And at the end of that two years, his wife becomes pregnant, and and he describes this pregnancy. and, And far from being this joyous, glorious experience, it is just filled with anxiety. Every visit to the the doctor is just every ultrasound, everything is reminding them of what it was like with their daughter. They've been here before and every time they're waiting to to have the heartbeat not show up or something to go wrong. And and he began to share this. He met with a group of pastors for prayer about their community. They were praying about something different, but then they began sharing and he began to explain to them just how difficult 
the season was for he and his wife. He writes this, our, our fight for faith left me exhausted. My soul was weary in prayer with these pastors. I laid out my anxiety and struggles and doubts. It was a brutally honest lament. He says that several pastors then came around, began to pray for him, with him. And he writes this as they did that, as they circled him. Bernie, another pastor, Bernie placed his thick hand on my chest and he prayed with confidence. God, I call on you to give strength to my brother. He leaned into me and it felt like he was pushing his prayer into my heart. He prayed again louder, I pray for strength for my brother, and then almost shouting, strength for my brother. And, and Rogoff says, he says, my fear didn't magically go away at that moment, but suddenly it was infused with this confidence that was Bernie's. Bernie's confidence in God suddenly was being shared with him and spilling over into him, and he was beginning again to remember a God in whom he could rest and be confident in this. God used that bold prayer of a brother to give him the strength that he desperately needed. Sometimes we may just be there to weep, to listen, to encourage the sufferer, to talk about the loved one and recall some memories of God's faithfulness or just great memories of that person. Sometimes it may be God using your confidence and your rest in him to be a messenger to that soul and to, to speak of that confidence in, into their heart and give them encouragement. We share from the comfort and hope God has given us to provide care. Weep, pray, listen share. I mentioned at the very start uh, that family in California that prayed for the raising of their daughter. Ultimately, a couple days after Christmas, they held her funeral. All during that time, there were just different accounts on social media and different people reporting how brothers and sisters came alongside them and prayed with them and mourned with them and walked with them through all of that and the day after her funeral, the mother, Kaylee, posted this. She said, Olive, we miss you, love you so much, and we'll see you soon. We know now more than ever that King Jesus is good, and his every word is worth believing and following at any cost. That's the song we'll sing until we're with you again, and we finally sing it together. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that, that is... The prayer didn't get answered. The prayer that they had asked the world to join them in prayer, that one wasn't answered. And yet through it all, they kept listening for God's word. They kept being surrounded by God's people. They kept pleading to God so that they could stand at the end in sorrow and say, Jesus, I know you. I know you even better now. Sounds a little like Job. I know you even better now. Oh, you are good. And I will, I will sing of your victory. And I will trust in that eternal future. Because that's where hope comes from. That's how we cope. We weep with broken hearts. We tell God how awful the pain is. We, we cry out to him with the kind of requests a desperate child makes, believing that he is resting in a perfect heavenly father who is good and kind. And we listen for his wisdom to speak truth and strength to us. And we receive the hope and love that God is giving us through our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray.
Father, I do not imagine that as we have considered these things this morning, that there are people in this room, people who are in first service, people who are maybe watching on Facebook, for whom this is really fresh, who are perhaps walking through agony even at this moment. Father, I pray that these truths from your word would sustain them, that they would find comfort in who you are and what you have done. Help us as a body of believers to be those those people who would come alongside of the grieving and those in pain and point them to a, a good and kind and faithful God and remind them of his good works, what he has done. Like David, remembering the record of all that had been done for the generations before. Father, may we as this church family walk through these valleys and through whatever pain or suffering you ordain for us in ways that reflect transparently our our hearts and our feelings, but may we pour into those feelings your truth. May we not stray away from knowing you, resting in you, believing in you. Father, I pray that if there's anyone listening this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins, Lord, we plead with you that on this day you would stir in their soul and bring them to repentance and faith that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that prevailing over all of this, over all of the the suffering, going back to Genesis 3, to the valleys people here are walking through today, that for those who belong to Jesus Christ and who are trusting him, there is great hope. There is eternal joy. There is coming a day when every tear will be wiped away and death will be no more. Lord, we pray that they would come to know that sure hope. Father, as we start a new week, help us this week to express our grief, but to do so by pleading to you, depending on you, and listening to you, and surrounding ourselves with the sweet body of Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.